0: Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 238 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to open the show today with a quote from the wonderful Viktor Frankl. If you don't know his story, you can find it in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, which tells the story of how he survived the Holocaust by finding personal meaning in the experience, which gave him the will to live through it. He went on to later establish a new school of existential therapy called Logotherapy, based on the premise that man's underlying motivator in life is a will to meaning, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And that leads me nicely to what he said. Everything can be taken from a man, but the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitudes in any given set of circumstances. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're well. I just wanted to kick off by saying thanks again for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club today. And I hope that the episodes you've listened to so far have helped you on your speaking and business journey. One of the things that I know will help you to accelerate your speaking success is having a talk that you're confident in delivering, excited to share and, you know, is going to get the audience into action. And that's why I'm running a live interactive masterclass where I'm going to be teaching you how to create a compelling talk that's also designed to be your biggest marketing asset if you want to join me for less than a few cups of coffee, then head over to saraharcher.co.uk and grab your spot. Now, another thing that's going to give you a leg up is my interview with today's guest. Phil Coley started off his business journey as a sports psychologist, and he worked with Olympians and world and European champions, both individual athletes and teams in a variety of sports and disciplines. And Phil's ability to influence team performance in the sports arena was spotted by a business leader who wanted to achieve the same success with his sales team. And this led Phil to train 100 sales managers and initiated his switch from sports to business performance. And he started his own consultancy in 2007. And after initial success, well, he ended up losing everything. And he had to start again. And that, though, taught him some of the most critical business lessons of all. And today, Phil has got a number of successful business interests, including a sales and marketing agency, an accountancy firm, a recruitment company, digital publishing and a well-being business. Goodness knows, I don't know where he finds the time for all that. And he and his business partner have also developed their simple program, which helps business owners have their own playbook based on six key pillars. And he's on the show today to share his sales, business and speaking tips to help you grow your brand, audience and success. Okay, let's head over to the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Phil Coley.
1: Really great to be here with you today, Sarah. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: You're very welcome. It's lovely to have you here. So we've been knocking around in similar networking events, and I'm really chuffed to actually have you come on the show and share all your sales wisdom and other bits and pieces. Let me start off because I read through your bio, but it's a great bio. And when you left school, you went into ad sales for a newspaper. Funnily enough, so did I. I got sold situations vacant when I first started out, which was really interesting. But uh, after your three years in ad sales, which sound like they were more successful than mine, you went off to university to pursue sport and people because you had a passion for both. Now I can clearly see where the passion for sport came from because you you played sports. Tell me what was the trigger for the interest in people?
1: So take it, taking a, st- a step back. So for me at school... Um, I didn't really apply myself. So I'm not saying I wasn't academic, I just didn't really apply myself because I was too busy playing sport. So I was playing sport at all sorts of levels, lots of different sports, and really enjoying school. And, you know, I, I had a fortunate upbringing in terms of that to, to have a private education, which, if I'm honest, if I hadn't have had that, I think my, my route and I may have gone off the rails and, and a number of things in those those teenage years. So I, I thank that for that. But Within that, I had a rude really awakening when I'd done my O-levels. And there we go. That's me showing my age now. For younger listeners, that's GCSEs. Um, but I had a really rude awakening when that was my first experience of failure, because I only really got one at grade C. So it was like, okay, how am I going to get through this? And, and I think through, through those times, I always had the ability to talk to people. And I didn't realize until later on in life, that was probably part of my selling technique it really upshot was I managed to scrape a few more O levels in the November and managed to get into sixth form and do my A levels, et cetera, et cetera. But, when I came out from school, I just knew that I wasn't quite ready for what was next. I didn't really know what was next. If I was honest, I was contemplating joining the REF and going into being the physical training side of the REF. couldn't go through the officer scheme because they weren't running it. So there were just a number of things that meant what, what was I going to do next? So I literally finished school in in the July. I finished school on the Friday and I started a job on the Monday in in Had sales, as you do. You know, no, nothing on my CV went in, could obviously talk and and that was that. And I think through that stage, I had three years of great training and I was talking to people all of the time and I was talking to business owners, you know, who were running small businesses, bigger businesses and, and working in a, in a team in just an environment that I sort of thrived in, but I still missed sport. And so I still missed that, that piece. And when I was at school age, I was captain of most of the teams I did. Um, and funny enough, one of the PI profile I currently have today, I come out as a captain. Um, so I was captaining, but, but also I suppose with captaining, you, you're trying to get the best of those out of those around you in that team environment and leading. Even at a young age, I, I could see that I had that ability. And that's what always fascinated me about individuals in the team. It didn't matter if you were at school age or, or getting older. And so my three years was a baptism of fire into business and particularly in ad sales. But because I didn't know much different, I was like, oh, this is fine. I just get on with it. But I still knew I wanted to do my sports side. So I, it was right at the sort of um, mid to late, um, well, the early 90s, actually. And sports psychology and sports science was only just becoming a thing in the UK. So I got on one of the the first sports science courses at St Mary's in London. And because I'd seen that, I was like, that's what I want to do. Um, Because I had been told at school, you know, as typically, if you're good at sport, why don't you just go be a PE teacher? I was like, no. Um, So for me... I'd done three years in industry and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm mature. So I was, I was more mature then to make a decision. So that's what led me to go sports science. I think that's what I want to do, particularly sports psychology. Cause I want to understand what makes somebody tick. And obviously that was, that was the start of the journey.
0: Interesting. And I was intrigued because there is this category of sports psychology, there's presumably normal psychology and you do sales. So what is the difference, the distinction between those things? So for instance, between sports psychology and sales psychology, is there a difference?
1: I I think fellow professionals would probably say there is a difference. Maybe they would say, oh, sports psychology is different to sales psychology, but being I've done both and I understand both, I think there's so many similarities. And you know, I, I had amazing experience in that sports psychology world. You know, I went to Olympics and world championships and European championships in, in a number of different sports and, and working with high performing teams and high performing individuals. And when I look at that from a sales perspective, there are so many similarities. And the only thing that I say is, is a real difference is that in the world of sport, you're normally working towards something. So, you know, you're normally working towards a, a match at the weekend, say, or you're work, working towards the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals of something. You're walk, working towards world championships on a four-year cycle, Olympics on a four-year cycle. So you're doing a lot of training for what you're ultimately going to get judged on. Whereas in sales, you're trying to be at the pinnacle every single day. And that that's probably the difference. The attributes are very much the same.
0: Mm. Cool. Yeah, I remember I read uh, a book because I play golf. And when I first started out, I was so annoyed. Like I just was so frustrating. I was throwing clubs and very badly behaved and just couldn't, you know, get it right. And I read this book by a golf psychologist called Bob Rotella. And I see so many of the things that, and he really helped me get my handicap down and just sort of manage my mind when I was playing the game. But a lot of the things that he said, I can see being applicable to business owners, like be your own best friend. Think about the process, not the results and all the things like, I mean, there's a number of them, but I can see the application in certainly in in managing mindset. When you were working with these teams and individuals, what sort of things came up for them? How did you help them uh, in what they were doing?
1: There's, there's probably two two trains. I mean, there are there's lots of things that that individuals in sport come up against. You know that that fear of failure um, mm. is is a big thing, um, and and also for some fear of success and being driven by those. But for a lot of people, it's the anxiety. Right. It's the anxiety of a pressure situation. And how is somebody going to to be able to handle that mm. and look at look at those those tools and and that comes about so much in, in, in sports by be it individual or team, because if you're in a team, you're looking around yourself and you've got to be as strong as everyone else and you don't want to be that weak weakest link because you can be found out. And equally as an individual, sometimes it's a, it's a little bit easier because you've only got yourself to blame. And so the dynamics are really different. But I think it's that whole, it's the anxiety in dealing with situations. How do you do it? And that was where I looked, worked a lot with people about what we call the psychophysiological uh, response to an event. So to keep it in pretty simple terms is most times in a pressure situation, people will um, exhibit a change in their emotions. So the heart rate goes up, sweaty palms, those, those things actually happen. And it's about trying to simulate those situations to see how can you bring those back in to a focus point, because you can either be not geared up enough, so you're not psyched up enough, or you're over psyched, you know, in in real terms, you need to be somewhere between the two. Um, And that was about working with individuals to get them into the right state, that right state of mind, as you alluded to. And... In the times in the different sports I was working in, we were using heart rate monitors, but not in the traditional sense. Using heart rate monitors a lot to see an emotional response. So we could be sat down nowhere near a sports field or, or pitch and talking about something and somebody's heart rate would change based on what you were saying to them. And you were, we were using a lot of visualization techniques as well. So mm. visualizing situations and you could see spikes on a heart rate monitor. The other side, alongside that, we, we're then trying to predict with the sports individuals and, and teams, but very much the individuals going, what do you think your heart rate is now? And start to do a lot of work around trying to change that. And I think it's when you relate that back to, to business as well, so many of those things are true, but they're missed. They're missed so much. So in sport, it's about marginal games. It's about optimal performance and you're training for that. Whereas in sport, I think, you know, sorry, in business, too many people just sort of jump in and say, right, this is what we're going to do. and you, you don't train for a situation that may be ahead of you.
0: That's really interesting. And I heard that, I'm working with someone at the moment, and she was saying that people don't think about the impact of the impact, which is yep. sort of similar to what you're talking about. Really, it, really, I find the whole thing fascinating. I used to play tennis and, and, they, and I was told from my coach that, between the top hundred players in the world, there's no difference in skill. It's literally that mindset and that attitude, and that exactly what you were talking about. And yeah, visualization has always fascinated me as well, especially with speaking. When people get speaking anxiety, because you know that really helps to get that mind because it doesn't know the difference, does it, between the imagination and, and the real thing? You can train it. So, and did you find that the those percentage gains? You know, they they bought into it. The people that you were working with, because sports has always been ahead of the game in this field, hasn't it? In terms of coaching and mindset.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely has. And what was really interesting for me in in the um, the early '90s, in particular, was that when you looked around the world, and I was really fortunate to get exposure to these, so I was able to go to the States and to Australia. And you look at the the Australian Institute of Sport, and that was probably one of the forerunners. Of stuff going on in sport. And of course, the Americans were were ahead as well. So in the in the early 90s, both America and Australia were way ahead. And a great example with the Australian Institute of Sport and how they how they ran things. They looked at attributes in different sports and what could you do. And one of the things they did with the um rugby teams, so the Australian rugby teams, they were identifying strengths and weaknesses and how they could do things. And I had the experience of seeing this in action. So Within rugby union, um, if the ball goes out, then you have what's called a line out. So you have somebody throw the ball in, somebody jumps up in the air and catches it. So within that, the person throwing in, which invariably is, is called the number two is called the hooker. They actually brought in darts players to work with the hooker because the movement is the same about accuracy. So they were working with the hookers, was working with a professional darts player to say, this is the movement. And that was a marginal gain of more accuracy with the throw. And then conversely, the person jumping up in the air at that time in particular, they didn't have as much as you have today where somebody can lift as well. But you say you'd have to project yourself as high in the air as you could. So and this was this was actually um, quite a comical moment when it was introduced. But some of the second rows, invariably the people who jump in the air, they actually worked with male ballerinas Mm -hmm. because of the strength. The strength in the legs to actually get yourself in the air in a controlled fashion. And so again, from marginal gains, that combination of the hooker thrown in and the person catching it, the percentage rate of successes went up and went up by about 12%. And that's just showing how to think about outside the box, still in sport, but what can different sports or activities bring to another sport?
0: And it's not just that marginal gain, is it? Because it's the compound effect of that marginal gain that then when you extrapolate, it has a massive effect um, on things. That's brilliant. So you're doing that, working with individuals and teams, high performance sports people. What happened next on your business journey to sort of shift you into what you do today?
1: Um, I mean, it it is one of those twists of fate. It, It really is. Now, Today, modern sport. Today, those who are in sports psychology, they they earn a good living now. Particularly, if we get to the very top. You know, there there are some some real key people and key individuals. A lot of people would have would have heard of Steve Peters. Now, they they earn proper money. But back in the nineties, it was still you know sort of physio level support kind of thing. And and I was happy with what I was was doing. And I was working in rugby, and squash, in tennis. I mean, I was probably working in about eighteen different sports as a as a, as a practicing. Sports scientist, and I was on the side of a squash court at a European Championships, uh, Junior uh, World Championships, watching a team play, and I was involved with with a number of individuals. And I think you know, obviously, one or two people knew who I was because it was quite new. It, you know, sports psychology was quite new. Working with with certain squash individuals, anyway. So I'm chatting to somebody at the side of me who's a parent of of a boy who's who's playing, and she just turns to me and she goes, "So you're you're a sport, you, you do sports psychology, you're a sports scientist." And I go, "Yes, yeah, yeah, no. I'm a Scientist, you know, and I, I specialize in sports psychology. And she went, Okay. And she said, So, what do you look at? Do you look at sort of goal setting and teamwork and high performance? So, yeah, you yeah, know, that's, that's very much what I do. And she goes, Oh, okay, interesting. And so she says to me, She said, um, I'd love you to come and do a presentation to, um, to my sales team. I was like, okay. Um, I said, yeah, no, that's fine. And, and me being me, I knew that I could talk. I knew that I can handle myself in in talking. So I was like, yeah, no, I I could do that. I said, um, yeah, no, that's fine. What kind of thing? She said, well, just sort of run some kind of team format. You know, it'd be really interesting for them to see things in in a different way. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, no I can I can do that. And I was sort of thinking four or five people, a couple of hours, not a problem. So I said, well, sort of what time period? She said, oh, it'd be great if you could do a day. I was like, okay. And I said, sort of for how many people? And I think it was about 80 people in the end. So she was running a, um, it was regional sales managers for a major retailer. I was like, right. Okay. So I said, yep. I kept nodding and saying yes and thinking, right, how can I do it? So I just flipped, flipped it back to how I would do a normal kind of performance thing for teams and presentations. So I went to do this. And she said to me, would this figure be, and because I didn't talk commercial, she just said to me, would this figure be, be okay? And it was quite a big figure. And I was like, yeah, no, that would be fine. Quietly inside going, <laughs> geez. Right. Okay. So anyway, so to cut a long story short, I went and did this and it was a huge success. And I had people say, oh, this is great. And then there were actually some of the individuals said, oh, could I work with you individually? You know? And, and I was like, yes, yes, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And as we chatted, they, you know, we, well, I was talking about sales and, because in my advertising days, I've been on the phone a lot and also doing face-to-face. So not only was I giving them the, my experience from the sports psychology and the motivation and the goal setting and all those principles, I was also going, but maybe you want to look at this. And they went, oh, do you understand sales? I was like, yes, I do. And they were like, oh, wow. So I, I started on a journey there where I was like, actually, I think you know my, my pathway probably is in business because I was probably attracted by the money. And then I I got in right at the stage where call centres, um, but contact centres as they are today, were just becoming new in the UK, and I went to do some consulting with Telly West who ultimately turned into Virgin Media today but they'd literally just come into the country. They had a lot of door knockers on the door and they were looking to set up telephone sales um, to prospect people. And I I set up a lot of those call centers and the schemes. And then from there, I became seen as an expert on outbound calling in the contact center industry, worked with big companies setting up their strategy. Um, I bought in the first automated dialer into the UK, which is the bane of people's lives. They pick up the phone and there was nobody there. Um, So yeah, sorry, everyone, that's down to me. But that to me brought me into a whole new arena where it was teams within teams. So I was back in an environment I knew. So I was working and leading and sales with senior managers, you know, team leaders and the teams underneath. So fascinating for me to just be in the the right place at the right time. To be fair, at that stage,
0: did you enjoy that stuff? The the contact center stuff. Did it get a bit boring eventually there when you sort of put it into place? Because you strike me as someone who likes variety. Likes. Ch- I don't know if this is right, but
1: you're a problem solver. Yeah, no, no, you're right. I mean, that's why I was consulting. So, yeah. so, so within that, I would go in for three, six, nine months, um, yeah. sort it out, and then move it, move on somewhere else. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that because it was nice yeah. to go in as, as you say, solving the problem. Going well, if you do this, this, and this, that'll do that, and they're like. Ah, okay right let's go on and do it and I think it's I've probably always carried that through both in sport and business I have that ability to look at something logically and within my experience levels go that's what we need to do to change it or why don't we try it like that and that's back to those marginal gains and when people talk about sports science sports psychology and coaching is that's what you learn when you're in sport at the highest level you're not, like, take your golf analogy. You're not taking someone's golf swing apart. You're looking at one small element of the swing that will make the ball go longer and straighter to do it. And that's, that's what a marginal gain is. And that's the skill of a coach is not to rebuild. It's just to re-identify and then just change something very slightly.
0: But that mindset piece comes in even then, because I remember my golf coach, changing something in my swing. And there is that inevitable fall off of performance. Like you have to take, you know, a step back to go too forward, but getting people to, and I'm a tennis coach, you know, I used to coach tennis. So making a tweak to someone's serve and saying, look, you're going to see a drop off here in your performance, but that's a mindset piece. Again, it's getting them to be able to stick with it long enough. And that applies in business coaching as well. What you do and what I do in speaking, it's a, it's getting them to sort of hold their nerve and, and go, go in for it. That's really cool. So you're, you're in the world of sales coaching and call centers. I read in your bio and seen that you know you had some ups and downs yourself. Tell me about the next part of the journey,
1: yeah, and that's that's an interesting one. it's and it's one i'm', I'm happier to start sharing because it was a a moment i'm I'm all about success, you know, and I'm driven and driven in sport to succeed and work with you know high performing teams. and as I grow my consultancy and I, I grew it well, and I was really happy with the consultancy and the way that i was was working. i was I started a an outsourced um telemarketing company as well and sold that on and that was all successful et etc cetera, et cetera. had a few life changes um as as people do um went through separation et cetera. and then I was still you know move, moving my business through and you know being you know still being sort of part-time dad and going, going through those things in life but I got to a point where things were going well And I wanted to branch out into uh, another area alongside what I was doing. And I did one of those most foolish things. I tried to turn a hobby into a business. And it it was, when I look back on it now, it was was probably a defining moment in my life um, as I look back on it now. But it was the point where I said, right, I've got my successful business. That's going well. I'm now going to do this alongside it and concentrate my efforts. And it, it was just the wrong move. I just... I didn't know it well enough. It was a passion of mine. It was a hobby and I enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, I can do this as a business. But I didn't know the intricacies. And it was it was an agricultural type business. And it was two hours away from where it lives. I was relying on other people. And I just hadn't planned it because I didn't know it. If I'm perfectly honest, I had this great idea that, yeah, I can sell things. So I'll be able to sell what we're doing and that'll be great. And it'll do this and it'll do that. But in reality, I didn't have control of it. And, and that was my downfall. I didn't have the control because I didn't have the knowledge and I didn't have the right team to be able to do it. And that, that's what I look back now. So, you know, I, I lost everything. So, you know, that and wow. I mean everything. So that was a real moment of going, okay, got to start again. You know, and that, that was that whole time. You don't realize until you look back the mistakes you made And then how you learn from that. And I think that probably what defines me in terms of what I do as business is I can actually talk from highs and lows. And I I see that as a strength today. I'm like, yeah, you know, I can look back and I can talk to people going, are you really sure about this? Have you got everything around you? Because I've been there and done that. And I definitely have. And I think that that was the moment for me to go, right, let's just take a little bit of time out, and you know settle everything down so I, I did have a couple of years where i had to settle down you know but based on losing everything you, you know, didn't have a choice um but then you sort of get your confidence back and you go back and you dust yourself down and you go Yeah. Okay. Learn from that. Let's, let's crack on again. And I think when I look on reflection now and I look at what today looks like, and I've got amazing business partner and it's, it's quite, it's quite funny, the dynamics of me and my business partner. So we, we've got another number of business interests, but I am a salesperson and I do not ever say I'm not, people know that. Uh, But my business partner is an accountant. And so, you know, the two of us, work off really well together you know we, we have an amazing business business model that we've developed but I don't go anywhere near the money I'm not allowed anywhere near the money not, not because of what's happened in the past but because I'm a salesman and it's like salesmen should never run a business they just shouldn't because they see shiny things they see money and they go oh, let's go and spend it whereas with Mark it's we know our figures every single morning you know every single morning he and I can see the figures you know I look at them and it tells us where we are. And, you know, every single day, you know, our 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 sort of dashboard that we have with red, amber, and green on it is always green. And so for me, it's the confidence of the right people in the team. And, you know, that that's that's probably what makes me as strong as I am today.
0: So I just want to go back and unpick it a bit because I whenever I tell teach people speak or podcast, I know my audience will be like if you say something, my audience is probably thinking, I want to know more about that. So a couple of questions. Cause you had your successful business already and then you tried this new thing it wasn't cider making or anything like that no 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 okay but so your original business was that not ring fenced so that the other thing didn't affect it because you say you lost everything
1: so no it did lose everything so it wasn't ring fenced in terms of it was propping up the other so Ah. it was it was it was investing money out of the one into the other to prop it up so running it through there, because as as the the business that it was, it was very cash thirsty in the first part of it. And then you get your return later on in the, in the year. And so it was very cash thirsty. So within that, I was having to prop it up with the other business. But also as, as well, I don't think it's the mistake, but the one thing that I did do, which is why it came back to bite me, was on two trade supplies that we needed. The only way to get what we needed was to write a personal guarantee uh-huh. and so that's when everything came crashing down so in terms of that I had limited companies but I had written two personal guarantees so in terms of that that was that was the actual that was the the final straw that, that brought the pack of cards come tumbling down and everything with it
0: oh yeah, and then the two years that you took out were you did you take a corporate job then when you said you settled down what what were you doing in that time
1: yeah, so I, I went into the charitable sector. I went okay. into the charitable sector because it was like, one, I just wanted to to take time out and not go back into what I knew, if I was honest. I was like, I'm just not going to go back in what I knew. You know, am, am I doing the right things? Am I not doing the right things? A time of reflection. But I still, I suppose, there was probably something morally inside that was I wanted to put something back. So I, I went to work for a charity that um, was about drug and alcohol abuse and also about women, women's abuse as well. So it was it was a multifaceted charity. And I went in in terms of corporate partnerships. So in essence, it was a sales role, because I was creating corporate partnerships. And so I was still doing what I loved and being creative, but putting something back into a charity. And, and what's really interesting is one of the key partners I managed to pull in at that stage was Ecclesiastical Insurance. And had a really nice note from the guy that I worked with who's who's head of their partnerships and head of their responsibilities now quite high up in he sent me a note I don't know three or four weeks ago because there was a picture of me on stage on doing something and he was going that was the best partnership we ever had and he put it actually put it on LinkedIn which was really nice of him so you know that even for me at that stage it was just a steadier time um, but I was still putting something back and I was still keeping my my hand in I suppose in in terms of the skills that I had
0: Cool. And then how did you, you, you talk about this partnership and I really think that's, that's absolutely right. If you've got a strength, you know, you've got a weakness or, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. something that you, it's not your superpower, find someone else. How did you find each other?
1: So when I, I, I started, um, what is I plus sales and marketing now? So, so in terms of that, our, our sort of first step and that was me really back out in the outside world was I, I went back networking to a networking group I knew in the local area. Met a few people there. I'd got some uh, video equipment and I could do do video. So it was about the time where video was was coming in. So you know we we're, we're talking a few years ago and started to do some some video work with people. And then that was good. And then they were going. We're thinking about doing this. We're thinking. About... And I said, well, maybe you should think about that. And they were like, do you understand that? I was like, yeah. And so started to use video to get into a company. And once I was in with a the company, then it was like, one well, we can actually offer these other things because everybody wanted video. And so, so within that, started to then look at social media, but then looking at it from very much a lead generation perspective, started to do lead generation for people, particularly startups and scale-up businesses, very much similar to what we do today. And I was introduced to my now business partner, who was working for a firm. They wanted to get some more leads, said, this is what we can do. And, you know, it was was a great introduction. And he and I then for about three years, he was client and I was supplier, but we just built a really good relationship and he and I had all sorts of chats and cause I was actually, you know, genuinely interested in how accounting worked. Cause I knew that'd be my downfall before it was just like, how's this work?" And, and he and I just, just, just sort of created a really good friendship. And the, the firm he was working for was scaling down and, and he and I just had a conversation saying, look, and I said to him, I said, look, you've got a real skill I need. I said, you're not a salesman, but I'm not an accountant. And we had this sort of laugh in the chat and I can remember it vividly. We met down at the mall in just off the M5 in Bristol and we went to this little coffee shop we're having out. and he said, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And we did and we shook hands on it and that was that and the rest, is, the rest is history within seven days up and running and we haven't looked back. I think Mark and I have been business partners now for just short of four years and you know we've gone from strength to strength from what that company was to what we have today
0: that's a great story and i think it's 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 important sometimes you can go fast on your own further together which is a, which is a really good point okay so you've been in sales for a long time and i would imagine that over that period of time the landscape has changed significantly but i suspect there are some constants what are those constants that you believe uh, result in success as much today as back then
1: i mean you're definitely right the landscape has changed hugely and i think the landscape in if you class sales and marketing put them all together for a moment i mean it, you know it's five years 10 years 15 years 20 years you take five year intervals massive change every single five-year interval but the principles haven't changed they just haven't haven't changed and a lot of people in marketing talk about a model called ada which is attention interest desire and action and, and that's quite common and and for me mine you know I, I have a seven step program but I also have much more of a simple program which I call is ATC and I just call you know attract traffic and convert it you know that that's that's what it's about so that whole attraction has never changed you know you go back in history and and I I talk a lot about the famous greek and roman marketplaces In those days, I would have loved to have gone back to some of those markets. And I think there's still some markets around the world. You know, I've been to North Africa and seen some of those markets. The way they hustle has not changed. The way somebody shouts, the the way somebody cooks some food in these lovely markets, they're attracting people in. And then when they got the people in front of them, then they're selling to the audience and they're doing a deal. And then they're converting them and giving giving the money. So in real terms, that hasn't changed. And I think in some ways it's got overcomplicated because people go down, you know, this, this whole thing about omni-channel, people go down a certain channel, and I think omni-channel is correct. You've got to be across the channels where your customers are, but you've still got to attract them. You've still got to engage with them. You've still got to have them as traffic and, and have systems to actually then convert them. And I think, for me, people have lost the art of conversion because they're relying on technology too much to convert so simple terms it hasn't changed in two or three thousand years genuinely not
0: so could you give some tips around or the or even identify some of the mistakes that you see, I mean you said they're relying too much on automation what would you do differently or what would you coach someone to do differently
1: so the, the number one thing that I, I look at with people is I look at what is their product so we actually look at their product and there's a lot of people today, particularly in a solution or, or service orientated area, they think, oh, I've got this great offer that people are going to want. And it's like, have you actually investigated? Have you come up with something new that's groundbreaking or have you come up with something new that will end up in the skip next week? You know, th- those are key things. And a lot of people, um, a lot of people when they start, they people they go to first. And the people they sell to first, uh, I always say to people, there's two people going to buy from you in the beginning. and That's friends and fools. And people go, well, why is that? I go, well, your friends are going to try and help you because they won't tell you it's wrong. And then also people who don't believe in it. So th- those can be some of your start out places. So I say to people, really investigate your product first of all. What is the solution that it's, you know, what what's the solution? What's the problem that it's going to solve? And if you can't answer that question, then there's something wrong. And that's my that's my number one. My number two, then is to really know your audience and know where they are. And today your audience could be across multiple places. Those those two are probably the most important. And then look at ways to convert. But definitely, I I see too many people take that first step and they just get it wrong. They I've got this great idea. And the amount of people I talk to, they go, they've got this great idea. And I'm like, where did you pull that one from?
0: No, that's true. And and I do exactly the same things with people with their talks because, and I I don't know if you see this mistake and please note, if you're listening to this, I would say, don't go and invest your money in an all singing, all dancing website until you've got the clarity on exactly what Phil just said, the problem that you solve and all of the audience stuff around the messaging. Because what happens is people go out and get a website and then they need to change it all because what they do, what they think they're supposed to be doing often changes. Is that your experience too?
1: Yeah, it, it is my experience. And, and actually, I go back to my my advertising days is when I was selling advertising, there was no digital marketing. You know, we, we're talking in the late 80s, no digital marketing at all. So it was TV, radio and print. And within that, you're, you're selling the print and you're going, right, let's get this out. And then there started to be codes come in. People try to track it through codes. But you still knew, and today's the same, you know, you know, 50% of your marketing works, you just have no idea which 50%. And the thing that makes me smile today is websites. Absolutely, you've got to have a website, but think about how you're going to use that website. And I even look at my own business is I know that 40% of my business comes from networking. And I know the other, another 40% comes from referrals. So 80% of my business across both, well, three of our business interests comes from those two channels. And the rest comes from online or comes from comes from, from LinkedIn. And we know that. So that's what we concentrate on. We concentrate on the networking. And, you know, Sarah, that's how you and I met. You know, we met through, through networking. So I know that that channel for me, in the way that I work, works for me. That doesn't work for everyone. Of course, it doesn't. In the digital world, when you've got transactional products, then the e-commerce is is a huge place and you've got to work on all sorts of strategies. But I totally agree with you. Do not go and spend a fortune on a website when you don't really know what you're trying to do or where your audience want to react. Because today, people can go onto Amazon, they can go onto eBay, they can go onto Google shops and go to the Facebook marketplace. There are so many different places people can buy and always think strategically, is your website and spending a fortune on e-commerce actually the right move?
0: Absolutely. okay, now we talked in relation to sports about those marginal gains, and we reference business in looking at the people that you've worked with your experience and all of that, what do you think are the levers that business owners should focus on to generate the sort of marginal gains that deliver the biggest results?
1: There's one one thing and one thing I, I dedicate every Friday to this, so I have a series called Follow-up Friday. And by definition, following up. And in my experience, and I'll talk about it from the sport and from a business setting, but I'll go business first, is from the sales perspective, that around 60% of people follow up once, about 30% of people follow up twice. And then when we get to about the seventh follow up, it's about 5% of people do it. And most sales in a B2B setting that's not transactional, most sales are made between the fourth and the sixth follow up. So for me, that number one marginal gain is to keep following up. Yes, there'll be objections in there and objection handling. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about consistently following up to get a yes or a no from that one. And that's where people go wrong. They'll send an email, send it across uh, any questions, they might follow up again, going, have you had any more thought? And then they stop. They go, oh, they're obviously not interested, but they haven't got hold of them. They don't realize there are so many things that, you know, we all live busy lives and we go, I oh, must get back to it. We must get back to it. And it's that follow up. So if there was one thing I would say for marginal gains that would make the biggest difference for anybody in sales or in business sales is following up.
0: Cool. That's really, that's really helpful. And it is, do you think that it's, I mean, this podcast, you know, we were all over the world. Um, culturally though I wonder if being a British person makes us less likely to do the follow-up because we're very you know I went to America once when I was a youngster and I got into trouble with the family that I was staying with for keeping on saying sorry now that I what do you keep saying sorry for you know you don't keep doing that and I just wonder if it's particularly a British trait that we don't because we don't want to bother people but I, I don't know is that something you've just dis- discovered
1: I mean, I, I've, got, I've, I've worked around the world and I've got clients, clients around the world. I mean, there are some cultural things in the way that you can do sales. And, and that's just to do with the physical location. You, know, you look in the Far East, there are cultural things you, you have to do. But from a follow-up perspective, no, I think that just comes down to procrastination and laziness. And if you, if you want to be really good in sales, there's no substitute for hard work. And it's the same being in the sports pitch you know, the the most successful sports people I've ever worked with in sports teams, put that extra little bit in. So that extra kick, that extra five minutes, the extra this, that makes a difference. Now, I'm not saying that somebody has to be in sales. They have to start at six in the morning and finish at eight at at night. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you need to be consistently working hard in sales, because it's all about numbers. And it doesn't matter if you're in Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Mexico, Um, North America, Middle East, UK, Europe, doesn't matter. Those doing the numbers will get the results. It's as simple as that.
0: Brilliant. So it's it's not our reserve. That's an excuse. Pick up that phone, do that email and follow up. Now, during our discussion, at various points in time, you've mentioned talking and being in front of people and, and audiences. This is obviously the speaking club. What parts do you feel that speaking has played in growing your business?
1: So I'll tell you a story because this is what this is all about, Sarah, isn't it? it so is. um, in terms of that, I have my very dear and very uh, my late grandmother to thank. So when I was at junior school and I was in shorts and mucking around and doing all of that kind of stuff, my grandmother had come from a, not, not a hugely, hugely privileged background, but she wanted to get on in life. And she was born um, on the outskirts of, of Birmingham. But when I, was, when I was growing up, I probably was about six or seven. And I got dragged off to this big house in Cheltenham, massive lawns out front. It was a very posh area of Cheltenham. And I got dragged into this house and I met Mrs. Barraclough. And Mrs. Barraclough was an elocution teacher. So I ended up having to do elocution, much to my dismay and was not interested, but I had to do it. And so by doing that, I appeared at the Cheltenham Literary Festival, which is now a big thing. And I had to, over the course of three or four years through my junior school days, had to go and stand on stage and do a poem every single year. And one of the years, I got highly commended, if I remember rightly, um, stood in front of about 2,000 people in Cheltenham Town Hall and the poem i can't remember the poem but i can remember the title it was on wenlock edge was the poem and i still remember it to this day standing there finding a spot in the background and talking to it so i think my grounding at that stage as much as i disliked it had a huge impact on me to be able to speak and to be able to understand how words can be used and that actually if you do it right people will listen to you. And, and also in my, my school years, I was very fortunate to have to read uh, a reading at uh, Gloucester cathedral for a a Christmas concert. And they were always packed with people from all over. So again, two or 3000 people. So I think for me, I've had moments in my life where I can happily stand on stage and I still do that today. But if you say the right words and you, I talk about, um, six components of the voice. And if you follow those components, You can capture the attention of anybody.
0: Voice is so, so important. And has it helped you? You know, have you seen results when you've spoken in business in terms of growth for your your companies?
1: Absolutely. Across the years. And I've spoken at many events. I spoke at quite a few call center events. and and even funnily enough, in the in that charitable time, I did. I actually stood up in front of a whole load of charities in London at a massive uh, conference about growth of charities, and I, I spoke on with with ecclesiastical insurance. We shared the stage to talk about the partnership. So yeah, all of those things have been hugely helpful to me and in my business. And I think today, when I look at speaking, is. I will happily speak in front of audiences. And obviously the last two years has been fairly restrictive, but also I think the growth of of podcasts and the, the growth of your great podcast, being able to be featured on some of those and knowing that I can confidently speak. And I'm sure with a bit of additional training from you, Sarah, I'm sure I could be better, but I, I do know in my, my years, I've, I've learned how to speak and how to hold myself. And I, I did just go back to those formative years. They they were so impactful on me that You know, just hold in that fear, get on with it, and it'll be great when you finished it. And that's what I love about speaking. I love that, that, that sort of the butterflies before and then that afterwards, that sort of euphoria of that was really that was really good.
0: Yeah, I often find people come to start speaking and they're absolutely petrified. But once they done it, they get the bug and then you can't get them off stage. (laughs) They just love that, that buzz that you get. Cool. And then what about stories? So I always talk about stories. You've mentioned stories, you've told some stories how important are they in sales and marketing do you believe?
1: I think they're hugely important but I I think I'd give a caveat to that I think sometimes in sales people can get a bit carried away with stories and they can become the pied piper a little bit and I'm like no you need to avoid that you need to have your stories relatable to the Mm. audience which is which is what you say anyway but in sales it does need to be in in that way you need to pull in people that relates to them and that's where I come from I think stories are really important and I think you know copywriting be that you know from a written perspective for content needs to have an element of a story there um, that's relatable but I also think now in today's age is and it does make me laugh and I do talk about it but it still makes me laugh is when people talk about personal brand and I'm like personal brand's been around since the year dot is people buy from people. But I do believe now, you know, you can look at the Richard Bransons, you can look at the Elon Musks, the Alan Sugars, you can look at people around the world. They've traded on their personal brand and them and their story as well. And I think you need to think as a salesperson, but moreover, if you're a business owner in in sales, because that's who I work with most of the time, is what is your story that relates Mm -hmm. to the audience but also they understand about you and they learn about you as an individual because people still buy from people i will always say that is the way people buy from people there's no doubt about it
0: absolutely true and that's why it's that's why it's so important because no one you know in in the competitive markets that we work in A great way to distinguish yourself from other people is to tell your unique story and make it relate to the pain and the problem and the desires and the transformation that people want. It's one way you can be unique because no one can copy that, you know, if it's your story. So that's brilliant. Cool. Is there anything, anything else that you think you want this audience to know before we switch into the standard questions, Uh, you know, any tips or sort of mistakes to avoid before we shift on?
1: The one thing I would say, and I'm just going to dive back into visualization, is in my business career, particularly early on, I had some amazing training and had some really amazing training. And within that training, so much of it revolved around role play. And lots of people go, oh, role play, don't want to do it. Oh, they don't see the use of it. and. When I look in the reflection of a sporting environment, as I said very early on in this podcast is within sport, you're training for the big event. So you're training every single day to get that little bit better, to try something different, to try something new without the fear of losing, because it's not then you're not being judged on it, on it then. So when I look at visualization, in particular, you can visualize situations, you can visualize telephone calls, you can visualize meetings, you can visualize speaking, There's, there's so much you can do within that power. And The only thing I say to people in this art visualization, I don't think it works. And I say, well, there's an emotional response. And I say to people, and your listeners can probably resonate it with right now. If I said, don't think about cutting a lemon open and seeing what it looks like now, most people are like, oh, they can see it. They can see this, this lovely, can see this lovely lemon. They can see probably just a little bead of of moisture from it. And they're probably salivating at the thought. That's visualization. None of us have got a lemon in front of us. And Visualization is so powerful. I talk about it a lot. So if you're in business, you need to visualize—not a lot of this hoorah stuff about visualize being multi-billionaire and all this kind of stuff. It's about visualize things that you do every day and make them better. Because by visualizing it, it, has an emotional stimulation that actually means you're actually doing that activity at that moment in time.
0: Brilliant. That's really useful. Whatever, whether it's speaking, business, sales, it really is powerful. That's a great tip. Cool. Okay. Now I'm going to talk about where people can find out more about you and work yep. with you and so on in Lisbon. I just have some standard questions to ask if that's okay. Yep, of course. Okay. First question, what's, the, we might've covered it, but I'm going to ask anyway, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you?
1: Given me confidence.
0: And then second question, have you had a gig, speaking gig where you're like, oh my God, I never want to remember that. That was awful. I don't want that to happen again. I want to wipe it from my memory. Has that ever happened to you?
1: once at an awards dinner it was the wrong audience it just didn't go where the way I thought it was going it just yeah what what I prepared for was not what the audience wanted it didn't it didn't work
0: and what was your thought process after that
1: I should have dug a bit more to the person organizing to say is that really right because I got some wrong information I didn't dig enough
0: but it didn't stop you from getting back on stage
1: oh no no, no.
0: we we all have them and this is the point it's like don't let one bad thing stop you because you know just learn from it like like you did I bet you haven't made that mistake again nope (laughs) okay what's the book that's had most impact on your life and why it's
1: two books but I think the one the one book is is the Johnny Wilkinson book that that one because that resonates with me in the way that he was never satisfied never content and it wasn't until he retired that he actually went why did I put myself through all that torture now I want to do what I should do best
0: it's it's an entrepreneur because I have that and right. it's it's hard isn't it do you yeah. ever look at people enviously and go I wish I could just be chill and content and happy does do you ever does do you ever feel that as well
1: probably in my younger years I think I'm, I'm much more content in myself now because of what mm. I've been through. So, so I, I'm not saying I'm super chilled. I'm not saying I'm super content, but I am very content. And I think I've learned who I am today.
0: Cool. That's great. And do you, do you remember the name of that book by Johnny Wilkinson?
1: No, but I've got it. I just can't remember okay. it.
0: No worries. <laughs> we'll, we'll find it and we'll put yep. it in the yep. show notes for people. That's no problem. Okay. What's the best bit of business advice you've ever had and why?
1: I'm going to say my business partner, never let a salesman run a, run a company. <laughs> Sorted. Sorted.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Cool. And then last question. If you could have any mentor and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why?
1: I think I'm a lot more ph- philosophical in my life now. I think somebody like the Dalai Lama.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. that's a good choice yeah. yeah there's a there's a big rise in this and also stoicism there's a yes, book yeah. that i keep hearing about stoics the stoics that i must yep. get hold of but uh, yeah maybe i need it to uh, to be more chill um cool excellent phil thank you so much for sharing all of that stuff for sharing your journey and and the tips uh, for people now if they want to find out more about working with you and i know that there's something special that you do that other people don't do and perhaps you could mention that in relation to your website. Where can they find you to connect with you and perhaps find out more about working with you?
1: If you head to my website, wwwphil you can find everything there. You can connect with me on there as well. Most of all, you can find sales content, sales courses on there. You don't need to sign up at all. You can just go in there, take part. And every month we are sending new content on there all of the time. So you can get into there, find out lots of information and learn lots of great things as well.
0: Now, I'm going to take the opportunity to ask you, since you mentioned it, the philosophy behind not making that content gated, because when I say gated, what I mean is that most people, including me, uh, will want people to give an email address in order to access these courses. Why have you shifted to not doing that?
1: So I've done it from a expert and authority perspective. So I have put all my content or it will all, you know, each month there's new content. The reason I'm putting it up there is I want people to use it, experience the difference, see success. And then if they want my help from a coaching perspective for those marginal gains, they'll reach out and want to work with me. So I've done it from a way that I'm not going to bombard them with emails. They can just go in there. They can see my content. They can judge for themselves how good it is. They'll see the difference and then they'll want to work with me.
0: Brilliant. Okay. And so you're on LinkedIn as well, but they can get there from that website.
1: Yeah, they certainly can. Yep, certainly can.
0: Smashing. Well, all that's me, left for me to do is say thank you very much, Phil, for sharing all of that stuff and best of luck with everything going forward.
1: Thank you, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on your amazing podcast. So thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. How is that for you? Good. You know what? It's so interesting. I hear this from so many guests that the best lessons in business and sports often come from failure. Now, Phil has a different take on a lot of things based on his background, and it's definitely worth checking out what he has to offer. Go and have a look at his website. The link is in the show notes, and there are loads of resources available completely free. You don't even have to give your email address. And do go and say hi to him on LinkedIn if something he said resonated with you. And also don't forget to go and visit saraharcher.co.uk to grab your spot on my upcoming masterclass on my six-step blueprint for creating talks that sell without selling. Thank you so much again for joining me. If you enjoyed the show, do go and leave a rating or review, an honest one, please, over at uh, ratethispodcast.com TSC. It really does mean a lot to me um, for you taking the time to do that. And it helps other people who need to develop their speaking or want to develop their speaking uh, to find the show. Eh, there we go. That's the end of this one. I'll be back next week with some more great tips and tools and techniques to help you on your speaking journey. But in the meantime, you know the drill go out, grab your life by the nuts, and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free snackable story challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.